Morning. Thanks. Join with me in reading God's Word, Philippians 4, 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Pray with me. Lord God, we just continue to declare, um, Jesus, that you are better than anything um, else, more than any comfort, more than our riches, more than what we're going to after the service, more than what we left. Um, Lord Jesus, you're better, and we just want to continue to declare that, Lord, and we just, um, now we just continue worship under your word. Jesus, you are the author. Um, you are the living word. Um, and in, in Psalm 19, um, it says, your words and your laws, your commandments are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So Lord, help us desire um, help us to desire your word this morning uh, like that, that it's, that it's more desirable than gold. Um, Lord God, um, instruct us, help us, we need you. Um, your words are better than any words we hear elsewhere, Lord God. So, so just instruct us, Lord. Um, help us all come under your word, me, me first and foremost, Lord. And, uh, um, and also just, just echoing the words of, of, uh, of David in Psalm um, 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So uh, we're here, finally, as Dan said. We're, we're here. We're at the end of um, this series on Philippians. Um, I hope that if, if you've been here the last 20 or so weeks, I hope and pray and trust that the Lord has encouraged you, convicted you, um, challenged you in the teaching. Um, otherwise, you know, you just wasted the last 20 weeks of your life. Um, no, but we come under his word because it does it challenge us and encourage us, and I just pray that and I hope that it, that has happened for you. I know it has for me. Um, we've had 10 different men up here, um, I think. I think, uh, including me, uh, pastors, pastors in training, um, people taking the Pastor Leadership Institute, and I, and I hope that you've seen the beauty of that picture of how God raises up um, uh, leaders within his church and multiplies them so that they can be men who continue to um, do the ministry of his word. And so hopefully you've seen that beauty this, this summer. I, I know I have. It's, it's been an awesome thing, just sitting underneath the teaching of these men. Um, so I'm going to reference a lot of the book um, this, this morning. Um, it's not going to be, my hope is that it's not just a review or a recap, but it's a conclusion. It's a way that we can, can, we can be sent out from it to continue to press on. Because um, once, once we're done with Philippians and we go to the next series, it's not like we don't have to press on anymore, right? Um, it's not like we're done with that, that part, now let's learn a new lesson. And we continue on pressing on um, in the faith, right? Walking in accordance and obedience to his word. And so in light of all we heard, hopefully we can be encouraged to continue that this morning. Um, so I'm going to reference a lot of the book. You can turn your Bibles on 
or open them up to Philippians and just keep them there because we're going to be, be going back and forth quickly through there. Um, and, and you'll hear echoes of what you've already heard the last 20 weeks, um, um, just, just so beautifully taught. So um, if you haven't heard all the messages, I encourage you to go to windsorchurch.org and click on the sermon series and listen to them. Um, I know that it'll bless you and it'll bring context this morning. So if you're just getting caught up, listen to those. Um, it'll be great. Especially maybe even Dan's first message where he opened the, the series up. This is going to tie in to this morning. So I'm not going to spend much time reviewing, but, but here I'm going to review a little bit. So just to recap, Paul wrote this letter from a prison, right? Ten years after he had planted this church in Philippi, the first church on the eastern edge of Europe, Macedonia. Philippi was a Roman colony with a lot of national pride in their Roman citizenship, you might remember. Many retired soldiers and perhaps Roman officials settled there. They're very, they just love their Roman citizenship. Probably had a lot of parades, a lot of banners. Um, unlike many of other Paul's letters, there's not a lot of instruction. Um, there's not a lot of admonishment. He's not addressing any particular sin or issue. He wrote this letter to, number one, thank them for sending him food and gifts while he was in prison via Epaphroditus. And he wrote them, number two, to encourage them to keep going. Keep doing what they are doing. Keep growing, keep pressing on in the middle of an ever-darkening, ever-hardening culture around them. And uh, I've often wondered, like, if Paul wrote a letter to Windsor Community Church, what would it look like? What would he say to us? Would there be more admonishment or more encouragement? Or I don't know. Well, we don't have to wonder what a letter from Paul would be like to Windsor Community Church because we have one here. It's called Philippians. Um, Colossians, every letter that... Paul wrote in the Bible is for Windsor Community Church, actually, um, because it's timeless, it's living and active. So we, we have been instructed by Philippians. It's for us. Um, in a lot of ways, we're similar to that church. Um, we're, there's not a whole lot broken. Um, there's a lot of areas of improvement and growth. Um, you may remember some of the specific encouragements that Paul gave the Philippian church from our series. In chapter one, just quickly, just specific encouragements from him. And I say encouragements or exhortations rather than admonishments because it was just, just really encouragements. In chapter 1, he encourages them towards unity, striving together side by side for the sake of proclaiming the gospel message. In chapter 2, to be like Christ in humility, considering others more important than themselves. And also in chapter 2, to work out their salvation as God continually works in, working in them. In chapter 3, to look out for those who corrupt the message of the gospel by trying to add their own laws and lists of rules to it, the Judaizers, for instance. In chapter 4, he encourages them not to be anxious by seeking uh, the God of peace um, and by focusing their thoughts on him, the peace of God. And that's it, really. Those are the specific encouragements from Paul. But how do we stretch this into 20 weeks then? Right? That's it. So the whole letter, right, has been an, is an encouragement. It's a, an encouragement to press on. But not because Paul just says to them the words, I encourage you to press on. Paul never tells them specifically to press on. Paul shows them what it looks like in his own life to press on. The encouragement comes from his own personal testimony. And all throughout the letter. This letter is not a letter of instruction, but a letter of examples more more examples. All the other encouragements in our series to burn the list you heard, to be content in all things, to endure through suffering, to press on to gain Christ, all come from Paul's examples from his own life. 
Paul's main point in this letter is to show the Philippians, and now us, because this letter is for us, that we all need to follow the example of the one he is following, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. So unlike all the other letters Paul wrote, most of them, I think, he, he, laid, he laid this letter out in a circular way. Um, this isn't a letter like the one of Romans where Paul systematically lays out point by point, and each point builds on the next point and then, and then, uh, of the gospel, and then like the latter half of the book is the implications of the gospel. Romans is great in a linear way of describing the gospel and its implications. Unlike that, this book is circular, and in the center of the circle, the center of gravity of this book is this poem in chapter 2, and we're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 2 on this poem, 2, 6 through 11. So you could turn there, or flip there, or swipe there right now, and uh, I, think this, I think the words are going to be up on the screen. So let's just read this again, chapter 2, 6 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the ultimate example of Christ. This is the focal point of the book. Everything else, all the encouragements, all the other sections stem out of this poem, we're going to look at that this morning. Any example Paul draws from his life in this book comes from him emulating Christ's example in this poem. If we want to hear what God is saying to us in the Philippians, in the book of Philippians, if we want to be encouraged by it, if we want to see the power of it and the motivation to press on at all in this life, we need to see the entire book, I would argue, through the lens of, of Christ's example in this poem. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So, so we're going to start with looking at the three verses that Dan just read for us in, in, the, in the final greetings of this book. Verse 21 of chapter 4. And they make up the final greeting. As you probably know, something different with a first century letter is that they had greetings kind of in bef- before and at, at the end, right? Um, I, I don't write letters usually with greetings at the end. Usually it's just like, see ya or something like that. But in this time, it's like there's final greetings. So that's what this is. And so verse 21 says this, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. This likely means the one who, ones who are in prison with him. And then he says, and all the saints greet you. Not just the ones in prison, but all who are in Rome and the surrounding area. And then this is really cool. I love this. Especially those in Caesar's household, he says. Paul just kind of slips this one in there. Speaks volumes, though, about the influence he's had in Rome as he's been proclaiming the gospel while in Rome, that, that even those in Caesar's household have heard and received the gospel and became believers. Household could mean either family members or servants of the house, and it's likely probably the servants, but although we don't know exactly, it could be members of the household too. But I want to go back to and highlight one huge thing in verse 21. It says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And if you go back to, we've heard this before in in chapter 1, verse 1, the the first greeting, 
chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. It's bookended in this letter, right? So therefore, it informs everything between those two bookends. It assumes that everything Paul is writing, all the encouragement to press on, all the examples to follow are given to saints in Christ Jesus. Very important. That's his audience. This book does not work. Nothing in here makes sense to anybody who's not a saint in Christ Jesus. I encourage you to go back, listen to the first message as I encourage you that, that Dan opened up. He goes more into detail about that, about being united with Christ. But in short, every Christian is a saint, okay? Every Christian is a saint. You don't have to be martyred or do a miracle or live in Calcutta to be a saint. You are a saint if you're a follower of Christ. It's assumed that everything Paul's writing is to them. And, and being in Christ means you're united with him. And again, this defines every Christian is united with Christ. And there's a ton of examples in Scripture of different aspects of our union with Christ. It's, it's everywhere. Just read the Bible for your homework um, to, and find the union with Christ. But this morning, I, w- I want to just focus on one aspect of it in light of Philippians 2. One light of our union with Christ. Um, one aspect of it in light of that poem we just read. One thing being united with Christ means is that we were united with him as he lived his incarnate life out on this earth. It is a physical union, meaning this. Whatever Jesus did on the earth, in his body, as a human, in the flesh, God sees us as if we did it in the flesh. That's one thing our union in Christ means, out of many things, but that's one thing it means. Because Jesus was our representative Whatever he did on earth, God counts it as something we did too, if we are united with Christ. For example, his perfect obedience, God counts as ours. In Romans 5.19, it says this of Jesus, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, none of us were alive when Jesus was, was walking on the earth, being obedient in the flesh, but if you're united with Christ now in belief, whatever he did 2,000 years ago is attributed to as something you did. That's one aspect that's really important to this book of of being in union with Christ. This goes the other direction too, that being in Christ means that what we do in the flesh is attributed to him as having done it, namely our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin we take his righteousness. Um, what he does, we do. What we do, he does. That's uh, in the flesh, and that's what it means. Or the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, in Isaiah 53 says. So what D- Jesus did as a human, we did. He was our human representative. And if that's true, then look at this poem again in chapter 2. His human obedience to the point of death on a cross is counted as your obedience. Pretty staggering, actually. His human death is counted as your death. His human resurrection is counted as yours. His human ascension is counted as yours. If you are in Christ, not only is Jesus your representative, but he's also your substitute. Look at Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Again, every, this, this poem, there's a one-for-one substitution um, of everything he did for us. He became nothing so we could become something. Something. 
He became the servant so we could become heirs. He was born in the likeness of men so we could be born in the likeness of him. Reborn. He was found in human form so we could be found in godly form one day with a glorious body like his. He humbled himself so we could be exalted. He became obedient to death so we could become obedient unto life. Whatever he relinquished by becoming a human, he gave to us as humans. Here's the point. Christ can't become your example until he has first become your substitute. Christ can't become your example until first he has become your substitute. The book of Philippians is death to you. There's no joy, there's no hope unless he is your substitute. If he's writing to people who aren't saints in Christ, they would have no hope of hearing what he's saying, let alone doing it. We've seen and we've said this letter is all about following Christ's example, right? So if Christ is merely our example and not our representative substitute, then it is death to us to try to follow him. After all, it's an infinitely harder thing to be like Jesus than it is to follow the 600 plus commands of the law in the Bible. If he's merely our example, then we're doomed. So listen how Paul describes following the law for someone who's not in Christ. It's in Romans 7, 10 through 12. You don't have to flip there. It'll be up on the screen. Romans 7, 10 through 12. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. That's what it's like to follow the law for someone who's not in Christ. But then listen how Paul describes following the law for someone who is in Christ. Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. Same phrase. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like we see in Philippians, and for sin, and, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If he is our substitute, then we have hope. Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Do you believe that he is your representative before a holy God? Do you believe that he was your substitute? If you don't, your whole life is about proving and earning and doubt and filled with grief and guilt and shame. But that's not the end of the story. Belief that Jesus was your substitute is the starting place. But that belief never stops, actually. But it's not all there is. Our belief and trust in his substitutionary life and death must turn into the faith and action of following his example. Let me read that again. Our belief and trust in his substitutionary life and death must turn into the faith and action of following his example. So Paul can write this letter to the Philippians who are in Christ Jesus because being in Christ, they have the ability to live out the encouragements Paul gives them. Um, so he can give them this beautiful poem of Jesus as an example and have the gall to tell them 
to be like Christ, and he can encourage them to follow his example without it being death to them because they, like him, are already in Christ Jesus as their substitute. Again, if we look through the lens of this poem at the rest of the book, we see that Christ's example is lived out and reflected in Paul's life, in Timothy's life, in Epaphroditus' life, in the rest of the book. Verse 2, 6 of that poem, just like Jesus didn't consider the glory and majesty he shared with God was a thing to grasp or hold on to, Paul in chapter 3 puts no confidence in the flesh, you'll remember. He lays aside the glory he had in being the perfect law-abiding Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He burned that list of credentials because Jesus burned his first. Verse 2, 4 of that poem, just like Jesus considered others more significant, so does Timothy in 2.21 uh, of Philippians. They said, they all, Paul says, they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. So he, he presents Timothy as a contrast. Um, like Jesus, he's humble and he considers others more important than themselves. And then in verse 2.8 of the poem, just like Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, so Epaphroditus served to the point of death. Chapter 2.30 of Epaphroditus, it says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here's the point. Christ is both our substitute and our example and must remain both. He must remain both. I was going to play Simon Says, but we don't have time as an object lesson, but you can maybe extrapolate why we would do that, but we'll, we'll keep going. If he's merely our substitute and not our example, then we just have to believe in him, but not follow him. Let me say that again. If he's merely or only our substitute and not our example, then we just have to believe in him, but not follow him. If he's merely our example, we just have to mimic him, but not have to trust him like Simon says, but he must be both for us. If he's only my example, then I'm the end of that endeavor. My goal is for me to be like him only, and when it's all done, I can feel really good about how closely I resemble him. It's about me, it's called religion. How dis disciplined I am, or how much I can accomplish, it's called performance. Merely following Christ as an example, only doing that makes me an end. But if he's only my substitute, then I'm the end of that endeavor as well. All I need to do is believe that Jesus has paid it all in my place. He lived and died in my place. He did what I couldn't do, so I wouldn't have to do it. His work is done, then so is mine. I'm righteous. I'm good. I'm golden. I'm getting in. I'm in the inside. If that's all Christ is to me, then I'm the end as well. His grace was costly for him, but cheap for me. So what is Christ Jesus to you? Is he mostly your substitute? Your eternal destiny is sure because of his work, so you can just coast until he returns, just waiting for him to come back, just waiting for that retirement in the sky? Or is he mostly your example you do your best to obey, to be a good Christian. Your favorite question is, what would Jesus do? And you try to do it. Or is he both? The real question is, like in Philippians, we, what do we see Christ was to Paul? What was Christ to Paul in Philippians? His substitute? Yes. 
His example, yes, just read anything he ever wrote in the New Testament. You'll see those two things come out very clearly. But Christ Jesus was and is even now more than that to Paul. Here in chapter 3, more clearly than any other passage I know of, um, I think we see that Christ Jesus was his end. Christ Jesus was his destination, his goal, not just his substitute or his example. In the beginning of chapter 3, you'll remember that Paul just finished listing all his credentials, all the facts uh, about him that made him great and um, proud and um, looked up to and respected in his culture. And they were all good things for a Jew. Then picking up in verse 3-7, I think it's up on the screen, it says, But whatever gain I had, listen to Paul, how Paul views Christ here. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When I first, I grew up in the church, the Lutheran church, um, and that doesn't matter, but I just grew up uh, just knowing all the stories, and, you know, I, I I never remember not believing God existed, or Jesus, not believing Jesus came and died, and and, and died for my sins, uh, but at a young age, I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew that I had to obey. I knew I had to like, obey these laws, and, and so Christ Jesus was very much my example that I had to follow, and, and very, you know, like any of us, if that's, that, that's it, but I'm not sure when I was saved and, or when I was in Christ Jesus, but I just lived this life of trying to earn, trying to get my acceptance, trying to just be a good Christian, and it wasn't until after my first son was born, and I was I was, I'd already been serving in a church, and I was like in construction, and I was in the basement of a house, hanging ductwork, and I was on top of a ladder, and I realized, I just know about Jesus, but I don't know him. I, I've heard about this thing called a relationship with Jesus, but I don't know what that is. And so coming down off that ladder, I made it the rest of my goal, and it still is to, to today, that I want to know more and more and more of him, of who he is. And, and, and this verse, this passage, was like what I clung to, that I wanted no Christ. I wanted this to be my, my cry too. So Christ Jesus is anything less than my end or my goal, then he's just a means to get something for me. Our lives have to be more than just resting and waiting and more than doing. They have to be about being with a person. Christ is our end our destination, our goal. To live is him. To die is to be with and near and know him. And here's the point. Christ Jesus is not just our substitute or our example. He's our end. What does it look like that Christ Jesus is our end? I don't know if you've noticed in this letter, this past series, how forward-looking Paul is in this book. The thrust of it. The hope, the goal, the aim is forward. Just think about the title of our series, Pressing On. That's looking forward. It means movement towards something. 
Just listen for the future tense and the forward-looking nature of these verses throughout the letter. I'm just going to blaze through them. Don't try to digest it all. Just listen for the forward-looking future tense of them. Verse 1 through 6, or verse 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 110, so that you all may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 119, this will turn out for my deliverance. 120, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. 120, that Christ will be honored in my body. 121, to die is gain. 123, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 128, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. 210, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 216, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud. 217, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, all forward-looking things, right? 3.8, in order that I may gain Christ and, and be found in him. 3.10, that I may know him, share in his sufferings, and become like him in his death. 3.11, that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. 3.12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 320, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. 321, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? 45, let your, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He is near, he's coming. 419, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's a sense that Paul knows his time on earth is coming to a close. This is probably like three to five years, maybe, before his death. And he has a sense, it seems like, it feels like, it, he knows it's not too far away. He's been fighting the fight, he's been running the race, and he's ready. But ready for what? Like, is he ready just to stop working so hard? Ready for retirement? Um, probably ready to not be beaten anymore. Those are good things to be ready for, not to not, to not want. But I would say the thing he's really ready to, be, to, to have is to be with a person. He's ready to meet Jesus. He's ready for eternal life with a person. John 17, 3 says, uh, Jesus says this of eternal life. Um, Jesus said it's to know the Father and the one whom he has sent, Christ Jesus. That's, that's what Paul's pressing on toward. That and bringing everyone he can along with him to meet that person. Including Caesar's household and prison guards and whoever else will, is in earshot of Paul's loud gospel proclaiming voice is to bring them with him to meet a person. This is why Paul can say to live is Christ and to die is gain because the only logical way he can say that if he's been living for um, the only logical way he could say that is if that what he's been living for on this side of death, he gets more of on the other side. It's the only way that logically works. And that, that thing he gets more of, that person he gets more of is Jesus Christ. How many of us could say that? How many of us could more easily think of death as loss than gain? 
It's all about what we're living for here. Will we get more of it or less of it after death? And that determines whether your death is gain or loss. But the only scenario where dying is gain is when Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, is your end now. Because he will be forevermore. But how can we get more of Christ than we already have? Don't we have all of him now? It's a question I had to ask. The answer, I believe, is no. We don't. We haven't touched him yet. We haven't felt his arms around us yet. We haven't heard his voice or seen his face yet. I haven't. We don't share the same space with him yet. Yes, I am talking physically, physical things. One day, if you are a saint in Christ Jesus, your union with Christ will be completed when you get your glorious body that he's going to give you that's just like his glorious body, Philippians tells us, and you get to share the same space in the new heaven and new earth with him and the Father forever. If you look for this in scripture, you'll see it everywhere. From the cover to cover, God seems really interested, really interested in occupying the same space as us. He likes the idea of being with us, Emmanuel. Why? Who knows why? He, he just loves us, that's why. Um, the garden, the temple, Jesus walking on the earth, over and over again, when we ruin the last space, he condescends and, and makes a new space for us until we break that one. Um, but one day, there will be a space that cannot be broken where he will be with us. Um, Philippians is no exception to, the, to this rule when you see this in the Bible. Paul knows it. Paul is hoping for it. This one day when he will be with Christ in every respect, and he wants to bring as many people with him as possible because he knows that's why he's remained and endured so much in his body on earth. It was worth it to him. He knows being with Christ is worth all he suffered in the flesh, in his body. And have you also noticed that this short letter, how earthy it is, how uh, human it is, how fleshy it is? I don't know if that's a word. It's made it up. How fleshy it is. For example, there's a lot of talk of Paul being in prison and receiving material gifts like food so that his body sustained in prison. There's a lot of Paul referring to his eventual death and departing, but remaining in the flesh. He calls the Philippians to live out their lives in the flesh or in their bodies as he has. A guy named Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies. Paul recounts all the ways he could take confidence in his flesh, but chooses not to. There's talk of resurrected bodies. And how our bodies will be transformed like his glorious body. Paul talks about learning contentment in spite of having food or not, or shelter or not, or abundance or not, whether his flesh is taken care of or not. And then lastly, most importantly, in this poem, chapter 2, verse 7, we see this fleshiness of this book. Jesus made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant being born in the flesh being, poor, being found in human form. He took on flesh. He lived with people in the flesh, was obedient, though his flesh was tempted in every way, to the point of death on the cross, a means of torture meant to tear 
his flesh until every ounce of life was ripped from his flesh. But that's not where it stops. We don't just follow his example uh, on this earth until we die, but we continue to follow him through resurrection, through uh, ascension into new heaven and new earth with him. Jesus' torn body was buried, and that same body was remade and resurrected anew, and that same body ascended into heaven, and that same body is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that same body attached to the same pierced hands will hold your glorified body one day, and your new body and his new body, along with the whole church, those of Caesar's household, everyone you bring with you, um, every, everyone that comes will occupy the same space again forever. Just what God wanted from the start. God always gets what he wants. Let me read one more verse and then we'll, um, we're going to celebrate communion. One, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. This kind of illustrates what I just talked about, that we follow Jesus even still and on into eternity. His example, he's still our substitute. We're still with him and, and in him. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead it says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. An agriculture reference that he is the first representative of a crop, and we are the crop that follows. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But as, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So if you're in Christ, you're in that harvest. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. And it's a very earthy, very fleshy picture of what Christ Jesus has done for us in his body, in living and dying. Number one, it's a picture of a substitution. He lived and he died in our place. He took our sin. He gave us his righteousness. Number two, it's a picture of his example. That as he he poured out his life for others in the flesh, we are called to do the same while we remain in our bodies. Number three, this celebration is a picture of our union with Christ that all those who are in Christ can celebrate. So if you're not sure if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, if you're not sure if he's in you or you're in him, I'd encourage you not to come up and take communion with the rest of us. Maybe just sit and reflect on what, just on this book and what, we've, what you've heard, um, and ask if you actually believe what you actually believe about this Jesus. Was he just a good man to emulate, to follow and copy? Or was he something more? Is he, is he also your representative? Is he also your substitute before God? Or no? Is he a person worth following? And then number four, this celebration is a reminder that we are not done yet. Proclaiming him to others, following him unto death, being resurrected one day with him and following him forever beyond. So uh, just take some time um, and reflect at your seats. And when you're, when you're ready, come forward and take the elements back to your seats. And then we will, uh, then I'll come back up and, and we'll take them together. But just take some time to reflect 
on the great substitution, the great example Jesus is for you, the great person he is for you to follow. And, um, and yeah, just let, this, let these symbols be a reminder of your union in Christ if you're in him. couple verses just as an encouragement as we go out continue to press on um, in Christ likeness in um, following and, and being united to him um, Philippians 3:20 says but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself and then, and then uh, verse 419, uh, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, have a great week pressing on, um, being in him and uh, following him. Have a great week. We'll see you next week, Lord willing.